I'm back to work, and other than continually dialing that number in Israel, there's little to do except talk to airplanes. My attorneys have taken charge. Today's the day I was supposed to pick up Ben at JFK, and this morning it finally hit me with the force I knew it would. I passed his room and saw the bags I packed for him last week. New clothes, new books, new beach toys for the rented house. I sat on his bed so long I was almost late for my shift. Everything hurts. Now I'm on break, and Tommy texts me to say I'll be riding to Jersey in his Tahoe. I've wavered for days. Why even go to the shore? It's a family reunion, I'm told repeatedly. Yeah, only it'll be a reunion without my son. Hours later, I'm in the back seat with the twins, Liz and Kelly, who jabber like kids setting out on vacation, which is what they are. By the outer bridge crossing, I'm asleep, and I don't wake until we're on Long Beach Island. The house is gorgeous, even though we turned right off the bridge and not left toward more expensive real estate, as the locals say. We're the last to arrive, and as I'm given the tour, my siblings address me as if we're celebrating either a wedding or a funeral. My sister Carrie hugs me, saying, Well, Mikey, about all we can do now is eat and drink for you. I sleep fitfully on the back porch, counting the many activities Ben will miss in the coming days. After dawn, I overhear Tommy on the phone and confront him. He tries to evade me, but I persist. He was canceling a photographer he had booked. His wife, Rosemary, bought matching white and red shirts and blue shorts for all the grandkids, and the photographer was going to secretly take a sunset photo, a present for Eileen next Christmas. But since Ben won't be here, we road trip to a lunch down in Barnegat Light, but my throat is constricted and I swallow only two spoonfuls of bisque. I can feel my mother looking at me. Back at the house, I quietly ask Kevin to give me a lift to the mainland so I can head home and return to work early. A full-scale family meeting erupts, and I thank everyone profusely for insisting I stay. But my reasoning is sound. I'll be miserable company, and furthermore, my vacation days will be much better saved for trips to court, or Israel, or The Hague. Katie hugs me and says, The world never runs out of pain. On the bus, I realize that the fall I've been dreading has already begun, and I can't even guess when I'll hit bottom. Over this long winter, I became convinced I would die soon. I felt this before. The last was in San Antonio on my second full day in the military. My prickly scalp was shaved, and my freshly issued boxers felt as stiff as cardboard. I was lying on my rack that felt like a coffin. I remember thinking the trick was not to move, that maybe I could somehow become invisible. Then, in the morning, I could slip away and sneak home. Now that feeling is back, and I realize it didn't ever leave. Somehow I've carried it around through all these years, but it feels very familiar, like it may stay forever. After the reunion ended, those who loved me most 
gathered round and lifted me up. Katie took charge and called Sam, who in turn called Mo, who notified my union reps. They obtained a list of psychiatrists who could prescribe antidepressants. After just one visit, I walked out with Prozac. But the harder part of this one-two strategy was finding a psychotherapist, and the list Katie obtained was alphabetical with no preferences indicated. So, I began. Last week, I trekked to Chelsea for a 10 p.m. appointment. I found the late hour rather odd, schlepping 90 minutes by subway each direction. I was met by a Woody Allen look-alike, down to the black glasses and bulky sweater. We transited the waiting room into his office, and I parked on the sofa. Woody, who was in socks, crossed to a file cabinet and turned his back. Uh, what do you go by? Michael. Uh, you can call me Mike. Okay. I don't know much about you. Why did you come? I watched his back as he sorted manila folders. Well, I started Prozac. I've been depressed. And, I guess, suicidal. I've been thinking about suicide. You know, suicidal thoughts. I went through this before, so the back of Woody's head nodded. And what's been blazy blah? Excuse me? He still didn't turn. I said, what's been happening lately? I sighed loudly. Yeah, well, my son's been living in Israel. Israel's nice. I was there recently. My tone hardened. He's four. Anyway, his mother abducted him. Aha! I coughed, then spoke louder. No. Excuse me? Excuse me. Woody finally turned. Yeah? Could you, I mean, would you mind sitting over here so I can see you? You know, when we speak, I mean. Woody padded over and slipped into his armchair with one leg tucked under him. Tell me, why does it bother you I wasn't sitting down? I simply lost patience. No, no, I responded. I, I mean, I've been learning the law lately. There's this legal term, res ipsa loquitur. It means thing itself speaks. That's the case here. The burden's on you, not me. Uh, why is that? Because you can't file and give me your full attention. Hmm, what's your dosage of Prozac? Before I could answer, a young man entered the waiting room. Without so much as a perfunctory knock, he strolled into the office, head craning. Hey guys, you didn't see a red... Woody pointed, and the hipster grabbed his umbrella and waved at us. Later, guys. I watched as he exited, then turned to Woody. Um, I don't suppose we could close the office door? He nodded. We could, but mind telling me why? I smiled. Sure, I'm just kind of funny. You know, strangers walking through while I discuss killing myself? Call me wacky. He leaned in. I'm worried about you. What you're going through. I fear you view yourself as uh, damaged goods. We should lock in appointments. I followed my instincts and stood up. No need. 
I'd like to be a big man and throw a check down on the table like they do in the movies. But to be honest, I'm broke. So I guess that's that. Mitch, he said, can I give you a hug? I stared at him. Well, I'm not Mitch. Not that you were distracted or anything. And no, you can't give me a hug. Maybe you can give Mitch a hug when he barges in. I walked toward the door. Now he got to see the back of my head. You should stay. I held up my hand. See, you're not getting it. It's not that I'm not doing therapy. I'm just not doing it with you. He looked hurt. I care about... And then I was out the door. One down. A few days later, I met the second candidate on Katie's list. There was no first name, just an initial. R. Miller, LCSW. I'll never know what the R stood for. She curtly indicated the specific spot where I should sit. When I did, she directed my ass exactly one sofa cushion to the right. Then she told me not to wear cologne in the future. I detected an accent and asked where she was from. She replied, Bulgaria, Casper's home country. So I asked to use the bathroom and walked straight out onto Madison Avenue. Two down. But today, number three has proven to be the charm. In fact, after just one session, I tell him that my nickname for him is Goldilocks. He smiles and says he's flattered. We've returned to Jamaica, same courthouse, same courtroom, same Judge Westfall. But this time, there are differences. One difference is we've been bumped to the very front of the calendar, and Muller v. Cohen is the first case called. Another difference is the defendant's table is empty. That lawyer with a bandaged forehead had no desire to be disbarred for aiding a criminal act, so he sent an identical fax to the court, stressing he no longer represents her. But the most extraordinary difference is Judge Westfall. For the first and only time, she refers to me by name and asks that I stand. Then she says, I'm sorry for how this turned out, Mr. Mullen. I nod and say nothing. The court asks if the father has had any contact with the child, and Hillary says, none. I see the judge grimace. Now things move quickly. The joint custody agreement is abolished, and I'm awarded sole custody of Benjamin Cohen Muller. Just like that. I'm also given a statement by the judge I can bring to the court of The Hague so it can issue a worldwide decree forcing her to return Ben to me. If not, Interpol may prepare an arrest warrant. Here in Queens, the missing defendant is found in contempt of court and possibly faces perjury charges as well. The gavel falls. As she so often does, Katie sums it up. You found a shrink named Paco, and he talks like Tony Soprano. Incredible. He's a handsome man, an aging Latin lover type, the sort of guy who could get away with wearing an ascot. Back in the 1950s, he was an adolescent punk in a Cuban street gang, the Nacionales. Then he got jumped and stabbed 
and a nurse at St. Vincent's suggested with his good looks he should try out for the chorus in West Side Story. He did, and within months he was the understudy for Baby John, ironically enough a jet, not a shark. He continued acting in Broadway musicals, even while earning his graduate degrees and conducting therapy for Catholic charities. Eventually he opened his own practice, but he's still capable of breaking into song or doing a fossey-like slide across his office floor. His real name is Alejandro, but he's been Paco since gangbanging days. He also uses the F-word excessively. His primary job now is to keep me alive until Ben gets back. By the second session, he busted his shoes by imitating the Dosekis guys in the commercials. I don't always employ neo-Freudian therapy, but when I do... We've been recapping the custody saga, focusing only on what unfolded after she walked out and took Ben to her mother's. Paco has been frantically taking notes, like a wire service reporter witnessing the Hindenburg docking. He continually interrupts to ask about her. Wait, she really allowed you to support her through five years of marriage while she earned two degrees, then left you the night before you started at NYU? She once didn't speak to you for seven consecutive days. She told you if she developed cancer, she would absolve you of your vows. When Paco pried out of me that she kept her parents' address on her driver's license all during our marriage, he smiled in recognition. He even correctly surmised intimate details about our sex life. Then he asked if I would object to him seeing my sister Katie. It surprised me, but I agreed. The next day, she visited Paco, and first they made small talk about her dream gig, the interior cabin voice inside every Lexus vehicle. But within ten minutes, they were done. Months later, he will explain. He cheated a bit because he felt the drama of my situation wouldn't allow for a more leisurely form of therapy. And quite frankly, he couldn't determine if I was a reliable narrator or a patient who enjoyed spinning myths. My matter-of-fact descriptions of her outrageous behavior could be masking my own cries for attention. Once Katie settled in, he inquired about her ex-sister-in-law, and, I was later shocked to learn, Katie replied that abducting Ben was the most evil act she had ever witnessed personally. So, I became instantly reliable. I only want to focus on discussing the abduction but he's slowly expanding the discourse. My mother, my father, nuns, Bob M. at LaGuardia. Katie and I huddled together the night our sister Lizzie died. We've got our work cut out for us. I'm en route to Manhattan again, only with my mother beside me. She does so much and asks so little, I happily grant her two frequent requests drive her to visit my father at the VA, and drive her to a church near Madison Square Garden for confession. When I was a kid, I often tagged along with both my parents, though I never understood why they would seek penance in another burrow. Now that I'm tall enough to see the spire of St. Rita's from my mother's stoop, I completely get it. In fact, I wonder if Manhattan is far enough. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been one week since my last confession. I argued with my husband over our six children, and I... Eileen, you're a dear. All those cupcakes. 
and remind Tommy he's serving the 11 tomorrow. What surprised me is why my mother felt the need for a midweek confession and couldn't hold off until Saturday. She said she's feeling something she swore she wouldn't, hate in her heart. In my post-abduction stupor, I was so clueless I had to ask why. She paused and said, my ex-daughter-in-law. I drop her right at the front steps and tell her I'll be cruising. A cell phone isn't an option for my mother, so we're rolling old school, where I'll keep circling the block until she appears. But now a funny thing happens. No more than 30 seconds after I pull away, I come upon an empty legal parking spot in Manhattan on a weekday afternoon, and my mother missed it. I felt like those big foot trackers whose cameras jam at the critical moment. After sticking the meter slip on the hot dashboard, I impulsively walk back to the church. I've always detested that smug line about no atheists in foxholes. It's the ultimate insult to those of us who have rejected whatever big tent we were assigned at birth. It questions our intelligence, our courage, even our honesty and integrity. The reasons I first left Catholicism, then Christianity, then all organized religion, and all faith are myriad and complex and not apt for a bumper sticker, fortune cookie, tweet, or meme. But my foxholes haven't sent me back here. It's the air conditioning. Authors often invoke the flickering of candles, the scent of incense, the dirge of organists. But for me, the first sensation is the overpowering sight and smell and even creak of wood. Entire forests have been chopped to bits for each of these enclaves. I spot my mother on a confessional line up front and duck into a back pew. Pushing aside the kneeler and sitting down, I remember my favorite poem by my favorite poet, Walt Whitman, and his meditation on animals. Not one kneels to another, nor to his kind that lived thousands of years ago. I look up, and there he is, dripping in blood and gore. What odd energies ran through the veins of artists who undoubtedly wept as they lovingly detailed the nails and thorns and spears. Once again, my mind returns to its most frequent theme, fathers and sons. I shake my head, just as I see it's my mother's turn, and an usher assists as if he's strapping her in for Space Mountain at Disney, the ultimate father and son story. Even if the entire drama played out just as they say, I can't abide demonstrating love by putting your own boy through such misery and suffering. And why ask an Abraham to do the same? Why not truly demonstrate love for us all and stop the clock, sparing all the sons and daughters to follow? Now, there would be a story to tell. As for the legend of the son, they say he suffered just as the rest of us do. But even within the confines of the drama, that isn't true either. Yes, he felt those bloody nails. Absolutely. But he saw hunger and he fed. He saw pain, and he alleviated. He saw death, and he breathed life. Good role modeling, undoubtedly, but ultimately, we come up short. The rest of us may bear our own pains, but we can't lay hands on those we love and assume they are aching. And I've discovered that's the greatest pain of all, the impotency 
to ease the burdens of those we love. If I could, I'd sign and notarize right now to assume all of Ben's tears. But I can't. Nothing done uh, to me pains me in the way Ben's travails do. And so I sit and sit. It's the same old story. The nails and the thorns and the spears play out as they always do. So many people I love find comfort here, and I'll always wish them well. Meanwhile, I wonder once again where my son is right now, and the tsunami of shock, pain, fear, and fury assaults me anew. I miss Ben so much, but unlike the father worshipped here, I have no preview of how our drama will unfold. Now my mother makes her way down the aisle, and when she sees me, she registers surprise, though clearly not because I scored the Moby Dick of parking spaces. As I help her down the front steps, she finally speaks. I thought I heard a bolt of lightning hit the roof. I can't help laughing. Nah, I got bored in the car. Like Whitman, I'll continue singing a song of myself, just as we all do. When we get home, we're greeted near the stoop by our neighbor. I love you, Mrs. Mullen, says Jackie. I love you, Mike. As I watch him hug my mother, I decide he's the only saint I still believe in. Paco is quite serious today. He didn't open by discussing Mitt's pitching or Jerry Orbach, whom he worked with on the Fantastics. Not that he cheats me on time. It's as if baseball or Broadway warms him up. I ask what's happening. He nods. Well, it isn't easy, pal. I've been thinking about this ex-wife and something called parental alienation syndrome. Amateurs have been diagnosing her for two years. Bipolar. Borderline personality disorder. But Paco always maintains you can't truly diagnose patients you haven't met. Though he once referenced narcissistic personality disorder. He leans forward. You need to hear this. All her efforts, the moving, the lawyers, ending meditation, claiming the only fucking jobs are in Indiana or Tel Aviv, even that stupid hyphen, it's all designed with one goal, to marginalize you to the point of eliminating you completely. She's intent on destroying your bond with Ben. Intent. I know that sounds highly dramatic, but that's what the abduction's about. Her actions speak to it. At this point, I worry she's fucking capable of anything. I listen respectfully. But despite it all, I question Paco's reasoning. She has to know by now she can't erase me from Ben's life. We have an unbreakable bond. So now I'm on KLM, my ticket paid in part by my mother, it's always uplifting to mooch off a septuagenarian on a fixed income for a loan. My schedule is a ridiculous patchwork due to all the shift swapping I've been forced into. After working a full eight hours, I taxied it from LaGuardia to JFK. Then we sat through a three-hour delay the airlines blamed on weather. But I called the JFK tower, and it was due to pure summer congestion. Once we were airborne... I slept fitfully for less than an hour, yet even then I dreamed of Ben. I stared out at complete blackness, and my soul ached.
We've landed in Amsterdam, and I try not to be rude as I hustle toward the jet bridge. In the airport restroom, I change into my court suit, then run downstairs to the rail lines. This is Europe, where the free market isn't a religion Jesus invented in the stable in Bethlehem. The ground transportation systems are efficient, quick, clean, inexpensive, safe, and environmentally friendly. In America, of course, we believe the Lord wants us to fight continual Mideast wars for oil, so we can all park our fat asses in eight-cylinder SUVs and spew carbon during day-long traffic jams. I hustle onto the train and ride smoothly from Schiphol Airport directly to The Hague, or Den Haag, as I soon learned it's called. Amsterdam, where my hotel awaits, is in the opposite direction, so I drag my carry-ons since I'm due to meet my Dutch attorney within the hour. There's not much in Den Haag besides the world-famous Court of International Justice, and after stowing the bags in my lawyer's sob, we proceed to the Peace Palace and enter the room where Mullen v. Cohen will be deliberated. But it's a quick deliberation. This case is all mine. In fact, it's as if we're arguing, resolved, smoking isn't harmful, before the Tobacco Growers Association of North Carolina. I don't know a word of Dutch. It's a series of guttural, Germanic-sounding barks. But I watch the panel as they read translations of Judge Westfall's ruling and glance at the empty defendant's table. They seem to say, wait, hold up. This American dude is invoking the Hague Convention on the civil aspects of international child abduction? Seriously? We wrote that shit. Damn, next case. And so, I win one. For once. But it's considerable victory, and not bad for a guy who hasn't showered in more than a day. The clock has begun ticking, so Benjamin Cohen Mullen must be returned within 30 days to his father in Queens, New York, USA, or Interpol will issue an arrest warrant. One of my deepest concerns is somewhat allayed when I'm assured both the United States and Israel are signatories to the treaty. I awkwardly thank the court and follow my lawyer into the hallway. I lie through my teeth when the newest member of the Mullen Worldwide legal team politely inquires about that wire transfer. Is it coming soon, yes? Yes, I tell her, very soon. She asks me to a late lunch, but I check my dual time zone watch and calculate I've been up for 38 hours. So instead, I let her drive me to the train station. In no time, I've passed the airport again and arrived in Amsterdam, and I'm so bone-tired, I decide to splurge on cab fare with some of the $200 slipped me yesterday by Kevin, who correctly assumed I'd be short funds. After converting to euros, I hail a taxi to my hotel and finally shower. It's about 5 p.m. I'm hungry, and knowing I'll need a good night's sleep, I resist napping. Instead, I head downstairs and out into the busiest street, the Damrak. The Indonesian food smells delicious, so I select a small place and have bakwan and beef rendang and two anger beers. Now I'm back out on the streets, and I wander the busy section near the rail station. I buy Ben's souvenirs, an orange baseball cap, and a plastic tram car, and chocolates for my mom, a small payback for my plane ticket. 
On every corner, cafes proudly display marijuana leaf symbols in their windows. American fellow travelers can legally imbibe, of course, provided they don't bring any of these plants or baked goods back onto KLM. But I have no such luxury, tempting as it is to bake my brain now. The FAA maintains a zero-tolerance policy, regardless of the country where the products are bought. I can just imagine explaining a failed urine test to Bob M. So, I keep walking in the direction of Anne Frank's house. Now I'm in Davalin, the infamous Windows District, where prostitutes of varying ages, races, genders, and persuasions beckon to pedestrians behind plate glass. I'm a man, clearly a foreigner in my Reeboks, and I'm alone, so I generate more than the usual amount of knocks and waves. Somehow, I knew I'd wind up down here, and the extra euros in my pocket sealed it. I stop before a narrow window and smile at a short, curvy, dark-haired woman in a red teddy. She smiles back, then quickly opens the door, and I'm inside. We briefly discuss the transaction, and I hand her euros. Now she yanks that street-front curtain closed, locks the door, and shows me to a rather small bed. I pull out a sheaf of three foil-wrapped condoms, but she shakes her head and extracts one of her own from a tiny box. I've forgotten what it's like to be in a civilized country. Her English is halting, but perfectly clear. What do you call yourself? Jim, uh, James. And you? I am Aya. 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 Last winter, Ben and I discussed palindromes. I undress to my boxers and sit beside her. It's been a long time since I've engaged. I'm worried about the same thing men have worried about for centuries. But as soon as she slips off that little red teddy and firmly places my hand on her thigh, all concerns fade. I begin caressing her, higher, lower, and after a moment, if we choose, we can both close our eyes and pretend we're with others. The hot lights apparently must stay on. I smile at Aya and gently move my face toward hers. She abruptly puts the palm of her hand on my chest. No, she says quietly, no kissing. Huh? I can fondle, squeeze, stroke, even more, but I can't kiss? My anatomy responds, and it's not good. I'm thinking this is like hitting a solid double to the opposite field, and then running due north from the batter's box and straight across the pitcher's mound before sliding into second and avoiding first base. No kissing? My euros would have been better spent on the many homeless crowding the Domrock near the sex museum. Aya tries. I try. But it's no use. I gather my clothes, collect my souvenirs, and shrug sheepishly. I assume she, of course, has seen this. Maybe not. As she slips back into the teddy, she tells me, Not all men need to kiss, James. You must be romantical. Within 24 hours, I'm back at JFK, hoping to forget this trip. I call and call and call the house in Israel. No response.